As a longtime fantasy reader, I've seen a lot of magic systems. They can start to run together. But somehow, I don't think I'll ever forget the disturbing, yet fascinating, system of bone shard magic. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with fantasy author Andrea Stewart. Her latest novel is The Bone Shard Daughter, an incredible new epic fantasy from Orbit Books. Andrea and I talk about treating magic like computer programming, what she learned from querying for 13 years, and the real-life bone shard that inspired the story. I had a great time chatting with Andrea, and I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Andrea Stewart, welcome to the Fantasy Inn. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm glad we were able to make this work. So I guess uh, when I asked you what you might be interested about in talking through this interview, uh, one of the topics that came up was birds. Uh, And so that definitely strikes me as an interesting hobby or passion. So I guess, can you elaborate a little on that? Well, (laughs) I I like to bird watch sometimes, which is why I said that. So basically, I kind of had a pretty lonely, sad childhood in some ways. (laughs) So that that was one of the hobbies that I had picked up with bird watching, which I still do sometimes. I'll go out and I have a nice camera now that I can get some good pictures or... I'm just walking around and I'll point out to my husband like, oh, like that's that kind of bird. And so I just I just find it really interesting to kind of see them in their natural environment and see all the different species. So, yeah, so that's something I do sometimes. It seems like an interesting hobby, too, because like I guess the more involved with it you get, the more like you just see everything around you. It's not like something you can just turn off. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the things that I really like about it, too, because I feel like it makes life a little bit more interesting because I know um, with my husband, he didn't really know much about birds before he met me, but I'll be like pointing out all the different kinds and everything. And he told me he didn't actually really think about it before. He just thought of birds as just this one entity kind of thing without thinking about like all the different kinds of species and all their adaptations. So yeah. Yeah, well, uh, I guess moving on more into uh, the actual speculative element of the interview, can you remember what first made you fall in love with science fiction and fantasy? You know, it's hard for me to think specifically what it might have been because my whole family is quite nerdy. So I grew up like watching Star Trek Next Generation. That was a big thing with my family. And my dad was always teaching us science facts or showing us little fun experiments. So my love affair with science fiction definitely started when I was young. And I think like the first book, like the first science fiction book I read was iRobot that I found in the basement. It was like my dad's old copy of that. And then I kind of found fantasy on my own just because we go to the library every weekend and I pick out a bunch of books and I kind of gravitated towards you know, the ones with dragons and unicorns and magic. So so that was, yeah, I think just being in that kind of environment, definitely with my family. And then my, my brother was really into that stuff too. And I, you know, he was my older brother. So always looking up to him. And so I pick up the stuff that he had finished with often. Yeah, I I still kind of firmly believe that as like a kid in a bookstore or a library, just browsing covers, trying to pick out what to read, fantasy and also, I guess, science fiction 
it's hard to beat that, right? You have just yeah. such cool covers that grab you in at that age. Well, still now for me as well. Right. I mean, the idea that, oh, like somebody is this downtrodden, like, kid and they have you know sad kind of background but then they turn out that they have magic you know like of course that's going to be appealing yeah absolutely well then i guess from kind of falling in love with it at a young age how did you go about deciding to become a writer you know it's kind of a funny question because i i wonder how many people actually say you know uh i am going to become a writer (laughs) because it was kind of a gradual process for me in a lot of ways so when i was in fifth grade my uh, teacher at the time had us do this creative writing exercise and um she thought mine was really good and was like using it as an example and i was like oh like maybe this is something i could do i i mean i've been doing a lot of reading and maybe that's the next step i don't know (laughs) but uh from there i kind of started trying to write my own stories and um my dad set me up with like a his old computer in the basement which was this is gonna date me but it's like you know a black screen with like green type on there so so, you know i had just i had learned how to type recently so i was um basically sitting down there and kind of typing up stories that were pretty much ripoffs of like stories that i'd read and it took me a little while to write something original but i think it wasn't until maybe like middle school or high school. And I thought like, well, what if I write a book? And the first thing that I wrote was not very good, obviously, but you know, I finished it. <laughs> and then from there, it's like, well, what if I write something better? So I think it was kind of like a gradual like escalation uh, until I was like, well, what if I try to get something published? And from there, I, it was all over for me. I was all in basically. Yeah, it is uh, by no means, I think, an easy or a short journey to publication, which I I think you've said before that you started querying around 2007 or so. Yeah. Yeah. So with your debut coming out in 2020, well, I should clarify your traditionally published debut. That's a long journey. So what was that like? Oh, goodness. Um, It might have been just even a little earlier, but I was looking through my emails and the earliest query I could find in there was from 2007. I might have sent something through a different email address before that or through paper mail because that was kind of some time ago and some agencies were still doing that. (laughs) So it, it was kind of a long process. That was like the first adult novel that I had finished writing. And I think at that stage, when you finish writing your first book like that, you think that that was the hardest thing to do. And you think, well, for sure, like everything else is just going to fall into place. And it doesn't work like that. (laughs) It does not work like that at all. Uh, So I sent out, I think, 80 something queries for that book. And uh, I got close. I got some full requests and some nice rejections, but nobody wanted to represent me based on it. So, you know, it's like one of those things where it's like, okay, well, I guess I'll just write another book because that's what you do when you're all in on something. <laughs> so, so I wrote another book and started querying that one. And while I was querying that one, I wrote another book started querying that one at the same time. <laughs> so, and then the, with the second book, I got representation. 
for that one. And that was in 2013. And then the third book that I've written, I was trying something completely different. So I had set that one aside. And then that second book that I had written, uh, did revisions with it, with my agent on it, and um, sent that out on submission. And that did not sell. <laughs> so it's like, you think like, oh, when you get an agent, like, oh, okay. So I wrote a book. That didn't, you know, that didn't lead to fame and fortune for me, right? So, but, oh, but I got an agent now. So now everything's going to be easy. <laughs> I was, I was yeah. still quite young then. So, <laughs> so um, <laughs> did not work out that way either. So that was the first book that I had um, go out on submission and that did not sell. And then I um, wrote two more books. One was a sequel to that third book that I'd written that was completely different genre. And then the other one was another book. And uh, that one I went through extensive revisions with my agent on. I ended up actually splitting into two books, which is it was basically it was like writing another book uh, because I had to go back and like redo a lot of stuff and um, replot everything. <laughs> so then we took that one out in submission and that one did not sell. And so then I wrote Bone Shark Daughter. So, uh, and I actually wrote that pretty quickly because I think after that last book that did not sell on submission, the second book that went out and did not sell, um, I really kind of took a bit of time and just thought about what, why it didn't sell, why the other, like the one before that didn't sell, what I could have done better, what I could have done differently. And I kind of thought about, too, the feedback that my agent had given me on both books and what was similar in that feedback. Like, where was where were my weaknesses? So I kind of analyzed all that and then wrote another book. And I was like, I think this one is good. <laughs> I think I've addressed the problems that I've had. And then that one sold very quickly. So it was, yeah, it was quite some time. It was quite a learning experience. But I did eventually get there. Yeah. And now, uh, so any of those other books that you were writing throughout this whole querying process, uh, were those what became some of your self-published books? Or was that something else entirely? So that was the one that was a completely different genre. Because I was just trying something different. I was like, well, you know, epic fantasy is my first love. It's what I really want to be writing. But I was like, you know, I got to take a break from this. I got to do something different. So I wrote a couple of lighter, like fluffier kind of urban fantasy books that were, you know, were, were kind of fun to write. And then that was what I ended up self-publishing because it's very different in tone from my epic fantasy stuff, I would say. Right. Yeah, I can imagine. Epic fantasy sort of has a lot of preconceived expectations to go along with it, especially I feel like more recently that's kind of gone a little bit towards the darker side as opposed to like old classic air quotes epic fantasy where it's very like heroic and like good versus evil. Yeah, I mean like I, I I like the dark stuff too. I think I don't tend I mean, well, some of the stuff I write is a little bit darker, but <laughs> says the person who has a book out now with uh shards of bone coming out of people's skulls. I know, I know. But you know, like I, I I still want it to be fun in a way, you know, instead of just like the dark slog. 
which I think is like yeah. my earlier book was a little bit of a dark slog, which is one of the things I was like, ah, maybe I should write something that has like, a, a, I mean, people still have fun, even in dark times. Like we're in a pandemic. I still see some great memes online. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that's what's missing from all the uh, apocalyptic movies and books is uh, how we would go down memeing. Yes, exactly. Well, I guess now that you're not necessarily at the end stage of your journey so far, but at least looking back, uh, knowing what you know now, what would you do differently? Uh, I think that I would have maybe tried to figure out sooner where my weaknesses were and do some more analysis as far as what... So one of the things that I did in addition to looking at what my weaknesses were was to look at the books that I really, really enjoyed and to pick apart like why I enjoyed it, like what parts of those books really clicked for me. And I think if I could do it all over again, I would do that sooner. Like definitely looking at the books that I really liked, figuring out what it was that they were doing that made me really like them and how they were doing it. Because I think that was really, really helpful for me when I went into writing The Bone Shard Daughter. Like I, I knew that there were certain things I wanted to put in there because they were elements that I enjoyed in other books. Right. And having just finished reading it, I think I could go through, at least for me, and check off a list of like, oh, this is one thing I love in epic fantasy. This is another thing I love. And sort of just combine them together. Yeah, basically. Um, well, before we dive too much into like the meat of Bone Shard Daughter, how did it feel to land a major publishing deal with Orbit after this like long extended journey? It was extremely surreal. Uh, like that whole experience, I mean... Honestly, sometimes I'll go back and like look at some of the emails between me and my agent because, you know, things happen really fast. It went out on submission, I think it was like early, oh no, late October, early November. And then she told, you know, everyone to get back to her within a couple weeks. And I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> and uh, this was, uh, <laughs> this was 2019? Yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, that made me a little bit nervous because I'm like, well, I don't know if they just like ignore that and just, I mean, because I didn't receive much of a response to my previous two books. I'm like, you know what? She knows what she's doing. That's her deal. My deal over here is to write the books. So it's like, okay, cool. Sure. And then I started hearing back from people um, really quickly and they're, you know, saying that they're reading it and enjoying it. And, you know, then it was like, going to acquisitions at different places. And then I got like my first offer and that like was pretty crazy. So, you know, my husband and I went out and like celebrated as soon as we had the offer in hand. I was just very excited about that. Um, but, you know, it wasn't over because there were other publishers that were still interested. But, you know, at that point I knew that it was going to be published. It was going to be a book. And that was very, you know, it was huge for me. So... Uh, basically then like orbit came in with, uh, a preempt offer cause we were, uh, it was going out on sub in, uh, the U S as well. And we were getting interest from publishers there. So, um, at that point it was like, do we set up an auction or do we take the preempt? And, um, I have always been a huge fan of orbit's books and uh, I have a friend that's uh, with Orbit as well. And, you know, they've always done right by her. So it's like, you know, 
I don't, I don't want to go through the anxiety of the, an auction or anything. So like, I will take this. This sounds great to me. So that was very, very exciting. And so we celebrated again, but basically we just like ordered Chipotle to watch the movie <laughs> at that point. Like, we don't need to go out again. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was incredible. Like it was, you know, it's one of those things that you just don't think it's ever going to happen. And then it does happen, but then it happens beyond your wildest dreams in the way that it happens. So, I mean, for me, I was like, I just want, I just want a book deal. I just want it to be published. And, uh, this was just incredible. It was, yeah, dream come true. Yeah, it's like, it seems like a textbook case of that whole, like, yeah, the overnight success is actually like a decade or more of blood, sweat, and tears. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, uh, now that we're talking about The Bone Shard Daughter, uh, can you give us a pitch for it? Uh, sure, yeah. So uh, it's an epic fantasy, and it's in an Asian-inspired setting. And I know the uh, blurb is just one character, so it looks like it's just a single character point of view, but it actually follows several characters. So one of them is the one that's um, on the back cover. That's uh, It's Lynn. She's a daughter who's trying to reclaim her rightful place as heir. But there's also Jovis, who's a smuggler who's kind of professes not to care about things, but he can't seem to stop doing good things. Uh, there's also two women that are in an established relationship and they're struggling with the class differences between them. And then there's a stranger on a remote island who's trying to unravel the mystery of why she's there. And this is all in the backdrop of an empire that's on the brink of revolution. So I told people like, well, you might like it if you like, you know, a failing empire on the brink of revolution, migratory islands, uh, monstrous constructs powered by bone chart magic. Uh, there's a magic system that's inspired by computer programming, and then there's magical animal companions, which is one of my favorite things. So, yes, absolutely. I know uh, the magical animal companion is one of those things I was saying that I was like, "Yep, that's something that's in almost every one of like my beloved childhood fantasy books." Yeah, yeah, I have a deep fondness for them. So, yeah, and so I know you're also a bit of a magic system enthusiast. So I have to ask. How did you go about creating this bone shard magic system? So that was another thing that was kind of an evolution of things where, you know, I, I took one idea and kind of built off of it from there. So the whole thing kind of originated way back uh, when I went to the San Antonio Worldcon. Uh, and I was with a bunch of friends. That was like the first Worldcon I'd ever gone to. And we went to this food court, and it's in San Antonio. And um, my friend Marina, uh, Marina Lossetter, she's actually another author. She went and got uh, Chinese food there, which is like probably not like the best place to get Chinese food is a food court in San Antonio. <laughs> <laughs> so she's like eating, and then you know she finds this like shard of bone in her food and almost chokes on it. Oh no! <laughs> so I was like, "Oh, a shard of bone." Huh, what if like that was used for magic? Uh, so that was kind of like the beginning <laughs> inklings of it. That kind of sat on that for a while, um, and I also knew that I wanted to have um, these constructs. So then I thought, okay, well, I'm going to tie these together. These shards of bone are used to power the constructs because magic always needs some kind of source of power, whether that's from the user or from something else. And uh, for that, it was like, okay, well, then it's powered by the life force of the people that the bone charts come from. 
so then they still have to be alive. And then where does that phone come from that you can take it from that they're still alive <laughs> afterwards? And uh, then I thought about like, well, if they're constructs, then, you know, somebody's made them and somebody has to have told them what to do and how. And I was like, well, obviously then the commands are going to be written on those bone charts that they stick in them. So it kind of like evolved like that. And then I thought about like, oh, like the, the commands that are on them, that's kind of like a little bit like programming them. How does that work and how can that be broken and why does it work? So that's basically kind of the questions that I asked myself and that's kind of how I grew the magic system from just like that one little encounter in the food court. Yeah, and just to think you were this close to having the book instead called something like Sketchy Takeout Food Daughter. <laughs> yeah, th- I think that's a very catchy title, actually. So. <laughs> uh, well, uh, so since you mentioned iRobot as being one of your kind of early loves of the genre, I couldn't help but notice there's kind of some similarities with the bone shard magic. I know there's like one particular scene where there's like three laws of bone shard construct sort of where like it's like oh uh, obey me always unless x y or z and so that definitely brought to mind the three laws of robotics for me yeah i mean when i was thinking about this kind of stuff like i, I really enjoy logic puzzles personally so i used to work as a compliance officer for uh for grants and contracts and that kind of stuff can be a little bit of a logic puzzle as well i mean in addition to programming i mean it's you're trying to figure out for me anyways i was like well can these people spend this grant money on this thing that they have over here and you know one set of rules says yes and another set of rules says maybe and another set of rules says no and then you have to kind of like look at that hierarchy and figure out you know is is this something that they can actually do and what is the reasoning here and how can we support this so so i really kind of enjoy that that um figuring out of the way that things are put together and whether or not something is allowable like within that set of rules so yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah no i i'm right there with you uh that kind of thing fascinates me with all the technicalities and loopholes and contradictory stuff especially as applied towards uh fantasy yeah because i guess with all the hard magic i guess recently shift from like the vague unknowable magic to the defined rules this seems kind of like a natural progression of that yeah i mean like i think that um with irobot one of the things i really loved was that i mean i read it as a kid so when i read those rules of robotics i was like well there's there's no way that you can get around it and then you would read the stories be like oh actually i can see that there's some problem here (laughs) (laughs) yeah well so the world you've created takes place on these floating migratory islands in an archipelago empire. Uh, I can't say I've seen that sort of setting very often in fantasy. So how did you come up with that? Um, well, first off, I really love archipelago settings in fantasies. Um, I just like the idea of there being multiple islands and they're all like slightly different and some of them may have a different culture um, or different foods that they eat. Uh, or different things that they grow or different um, the different economies. So and I like that sense of exploration too. When you go from one island to the next, 
the landscape changes in a lot of ways. Uh, so that was kind of one of the things I was like, well, I love reading archipelagos in fantasy, like, you know, Ursula K. Le Guin's Wizard of Earthsea. I really loved that. Um, my favorite uh, Narnia book was, you know, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, <laughs> where they're going and visiting these different islands and there's weird stuff on all the different islands. So that was one of the things I was like, this is something I really enjoy. I'm going to put it in my book. Um, as far as, uh, the floating and the migration of the islands, there's particular reasons for that, but that will come out, I think in, in later books. So, yeah, I have my suspicions, but, uh, no spoilers, I guess. So I know also, uh, you said before that, uh, I don't know if you still are, but you used to be a long distance swimmer. So it seems like this whole water element is kind of natural for you. Uh, so did that play a role on the story at all? Uh, I don't know if it had that much of an influence on the story. I mean, I do, I do still swim. I am like eight months pregnant right now. So, and then there's like the pandemic. So I haven't really gotten out to swim as much. I mean, I've done some like one mile swims, which is not like that far, but I think like, it, it, it does like mean that I'm very familiar with that kind of out of breath, maybe I'll drown feeling. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And I like the water. Uh, but as far as like how much of an influence it had, I don't think anybody in there is doing a ton of swimming. So yes. Other than uh, potentially uh, an early notable scene. Yes. Yes. I mean, I'm familiar with, well, this is, what you need to do if you're trying to survive. So, Right. And then I guess going back to the sort of migratory islands, you said actually on the Fantasy Writers subreddit that you like to draw maps of the worlds you create and kind of use them as a reference while writing. So how the heck do you pull that off when in your world all of the islands keep shifting? So they shift, but not drastically. So when I drew the map... Um, Basically, they're mostly in those same kind of positions where, you know, uh, northwest, east, south in relation to one another. They do shift um, positions depending on the season. So some of them will move closer together. Some of them move farther apart. As far as the migration, they kind of stick together in a cluster. They don't move too drastically. So the map is kind of like a general, like, you know, this is where they pretty much are okay um, yeah, I gotcha. yeah yeah in relation to one another although it you know the distances may change and the direction may slightly change as far as where they are uh so the map is kind of like supposed to be like a general reference for people there there is a map in the book actually they took my little chicken scratch thing and and made something beautiful so oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I was very, I was very impressed. I'm like, well, that looks way better than what I did. Cause the first thing that I did was just draw circles on a piece of paper. And then I was like, ah, uh, well, that's, I should probably do something better than that. Um, so I drew up something a little bit nicer and then they took that and made a beautiful piece of artwork with it. Uh, but the idea is that it's just, um, kind of a reference for the people in the world because there are like the navigators world that um, have to do all these complicated calculations to figure out 
like how to get from one island to the next in the fastest way because everything's shifted a little bit depending on what time of, of the year it is uh, or what season it is. So, so yeah, so it's, it's, it's a general reference. <laughs> gotcha. So one thing that also stood out to me as a reader is uh, with the five different points of view characters, most of them are written in different tenses. We've got a couple in first person. We've got a few in third person. So I imagine this was obviously intentional on your part. So how did you go about choosing these? Well, the two first person point of views are Jovis and Lynn. And those are kind of the main, main protagonists. And it kind of is based a little bit on their stories throughout the trilogy. I know they start in the first book. They're not really interacting and then things change uh, in that respect. So I kind of like, there's, there's a reason for that. And then I could have, I mean, I mean, honestly, I probably could have done the other ones in first person point of view too, but I felt like they were, I mean, they're still main characters, they're still protagonists, um, but they're kind of circling like this, the two main characters in a way. So, and then there was just the fact that I, I kind of like writing both first person and third person. And so that felt like it was a natural choice for me is to do both in the book. Um, but it was kind of like a way for me to differentiate the plot lines, I, I guess. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's hard to explain. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes sense. Yeah. And that, I kind of intuitively got that without really thinking about it, that, okay, well, these are like our key characters and it makes sense that we're more like deeply inside their heads. Yeah. And then those, the other characters are main characters, but they're kind of orbiting in a way. Uh, so I guess... For one of those key characters, Jovis, uh, one of the things that stood out to me about his experience is that he was half Poyer. So now this could easily be a reflection on the books that I've personally read rather than the fantasy genre as a whole. But this is kind of an element that I haven't seen a lot of in fantasy, sort of a character that is biracial or has to deal with that, but maybe it's not the central element of the plot. It's just sort of there. Um, so I guess, why did you choose to include this? Well, um, for me, I, I'm biracial, and I don't see that a lot in other fantasy books either. Um, or when I do, it's it's like two different species, right? Like a, a half elf, and and then right, and right. some of their experiences, I'm like, ah, it's not really like how <laughs> it's I, not quite the same thing. Yeah, it's not it's not it's not the same thing. Uh, I mean, there's like two different lifespans and everything, and they're always like focused on that kind of stuff. But, <laughs> So for me, it's like I, I wanted to see that in a character, especially, I mean, growing up, you know, it was a little bit strange in a lot of ways because you would be asked to fill out forms and it's always like, well, check which one that you are. And I'm like, well, do I have to choose? Like, that sounds, this seems kind of weird. <laughs> so, I mean, nowadays, I feel like there are so many people that are biracial and in this world, it made sense for there to be people that were biracial, um, not as many, obviously, as there are people that are Empyrean. But um, I really kind of wanted to have that experience, like his experience in there of growing up and, you know, feeling like he belongs in both worlds, but also 
like he doesn't. So I did put, you know, some of my experience of growing up and how that felt into there. Um, but yeah, I think I just kind of wanted to see that reflected, like see myself reflected in a fantasy book because I haven't really seen that a lot. And I think it, I think it fits with his character too, where he feels like kind of a little bit of an outsider in a lot of ways. Yeah. Just a little bit of an outsider. (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, so I know you said you like falling down research rabbit holes, uh, when you're planning out big projects. So are there any particular research rabbit holes that are memorable for you for this book? Oh, okay. So definitely tray panning, like the whole drilling a hole in somebody's skull. I, you know, so when I was thinking about this, you know, I was thinking they have to take a shard of bone and it has to be um, from a place that will, you know, most likely leave them alive. And I was asking around on um, a writer's forum, like, hey, like, do you guys have any ideas for this? And then you know, somebody mentioned tray panning, and I started looking into that. I'm like, this is really strange and really fascinating. It's apparently, like, I think um, there's archaeological evidence that this was done, like, way back, like, in the BC ages, you know? Like, it just... <laughs> It's been done for a very long time. Obviously, perhaps like not for the same reasons that it might be done now. Um, <laughs> oh, okay, I thought you were going to say to the same reasons in the book. It was like, oh, well, <laughs> well, definitely not. Gosh, definitely not for the same reasons in the book. But you know, they they had ideas back then that like it would be um, releasing like bad spirits or things like that. Sometimes it was done for medical reasons, like to relieve um, pressure in the brain. Like if somebody had you know, a head injury or, um, they had like, you know, cracked their skull and they had like shards of bone there and they needed to remove them, like things like that. Like they would actually go ahead and like drill a hole in their skull. But so there are these like ancient skulls that have these holes in them. And some of them, um, show signs that they had started to heal, which means that the person lived through the procedure, Uh, So it was really bizarre to me. Like, I had no idea that this was a thing. I mean, I knew, like, you know, in current medicine, yes, we will go ahead and, like, remove a piece of the skull sometimes if somebody's had a really bad head injury and their brain is swelling and you need to prevent injury to the brain. They'll remove a piece of the skull to relieve that pressure. But that goes back on. (laughs) So, (laughs) So learning that this was something that happened like way back in the day and that people lived through this, I was super fascinated. Of course, like the people in my book, they don't do it the same way that they did it historically, which is to kind of like drill a hole. I was like, Oh, they're not going to have time for that. We're just going to, just going to go in there with a hammer and a chisel. But, uh, but yeah, I, I kind of fell down that rabbit hole for a while. just reading about trepanation. Yeah, uh, I guess there's kind of a reason why they say that authors are always worried about people seeing their computer search history. Yes, yes. Like, do people die from drilling a hole in your skull? Like, ah, <laughs> should keep an eye on this person. Uh, yeah, and it's, I guess, just taking the bone from the skull is, for narrative purposes, a lot more intimidating than if they're like, okay, everyone has to donate the tip of their pinky finger, and we're going to use that bone. It felt to me like the least like harmful in some ways to try to take it from their skull. So. Right. So in the 
Orbit's new voices panel at Comic-Con this year. You said that your experience or hobby that made it into your book was how cooking and sharing a meal with people can just bring people together. Uh, so why was this experience or hobby in particular what you felt like mentioning? Um, I think it's because I, I grew up a lot with that kind of with my family. Like cooking is like a huge deal. Like we don't really celebrate Christmas very much. Uh, we more get into Thanksgiving. <laughs> like we'll all like cook an elaborate dish and we'll all sit down and, you know, share a, an insane meal together. But I feel like that's something that people do in a lot of cultures is cooking and sharing a meal. And it kind of is this intimate experience. Like I, I have a scene where, you know, um, Lynn is sharing a dinner with a family and they've been cooking it together and she contributes a little bit. And I think that it, it does kind of do more than just like people sitting down and talking together, like sharing a meal that you've cooked together. I kind of feel like is a little bit more of an intimate experience. And I really wanted to have that in my book. I wanted the food to be an important part of people's lives. And so I think I remember you saying at some point that you used to, maybe you still do, have your own garden where you produce most of your own food? Oh, I I used to. Yeah. You used <laughs> yeah. to, okay. Yeah, that was um, back when I lived in Sacramento and uh, housing is cheaper there. So I had a yard. <laughs> but um, <laughs> now I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area and you're not getting a yard unless you're like extremely wealthy. So... I'm in an apartment. I do actually still grow some um, vegetables on this tiny balcony that we have. But yeah, I, I, I yearn for the day when <laughs> we can have a yard again. <laughs> I can do that again because that was, I really enjoy that. I really enjoy, you know, growing the thing from scratch and then picking it and bringing it inside and then making a meal out of it. It's, it's, um, it's it's nice to be there from the beginning, I think. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. I do not have a green thumb or a yard. <laughs> and so I guess on the note of that Orbit Comic-Con panel, uh, you didn't get the chance to answer your own question. So if you had to choose a food to compare your book to, what would it be and why? Um, so I had to think about this for a little bit. And I was thinking, well, maybe like a... Funfetti cake <laughs> with like can candies <laughs> hidden inside, but it probably is covered in like black frosting or something. <laughs> so, okay, <laughs> I, I just think it would be, um, I would hope that it would be, um, an enjoyable experience and also have some like hidden little goodies in there under this veneer of darkness, I guess. <laughs> So I think that's what I would compare. I think, I think that's what I compare my book to. Right. That Having recently finished it, that sounds accurate to me. That feels about right. Oh, good. <laughs> well, so uh, I guess moving on a little bit, have there just been any books that you've enjoyed lately and you can recommend? Oh, yes. Okay. So um, one of the fun things that Orbit did when... Um, I signed with them as they sent me a box of books, which is like the most amazing thing when your writer is getting a box of books. So there were a few in there that I really, really loved. There was um, Wolf of Oranyaro by K.S. Uh, Willow. So that, that was, I loved it. Um, 
got like a really interesting uh, main character who's like very complex. Like you, you love watching to see watching and seeing what she does, and at the same time, sometimes you're like, "Oh no, don't do that." <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, that was that was really good. I really liked a, a Ridge of Dragons by Evan Winter. That is super fun. Um, also a bit dark, but uh, I think if you ever liked like the Drizzt Jordan books, you know, <laughs> where you're kind of like watching this character kind of build themselves up from nothing. And also like the whole dual wielding thing like that's I love that 10,000 doors of January. They sent me that one too, which I loved. It's like this completely different though. It's like this very lyrical, beautiful book about this guy, like all these, uh, this main character who uh, is, uh, finds out that there are these, these doors to other worlds, which is, you know, one of those things that I always loved as a kid is like portal fantasy. There's like Chaos Vector. That's the second book um, by Megan O'Keefe, who, you know, is is my friend, but also incredible writer. If if people haven't read Velocity Weapon, it's like it's a sci-fi and it's twisty and super fun. And then I read The Vanished Queen recently too, which I think just came out. Um, but that's also another book that has like, revolution in it and um, like a corrupt leader. And it was just like one of those things that especially in this climate, it was just really refreshing to read. Where it's like, oh, <laughs> yeah. everybody's just like trying to like do their best against this this bad person, and they succeed, and it's wonderful. So, yeah, that 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 was really great. It's, those are kind of like some of the recent books that I read that I really enjoyed. Orbit is one of my favorite publishers as well. So definitely, uh, I've read and enjoyed a lot of those books. Yeah, they're they're good. They're good. Well, uh, what's next for you? Any current or future projects you can talk about? I imagine uh, the sequel to Bone Shard Daughter is probably one of those. Oh, yeah. So that um, I'm in the middle of revising right now. Or I hope I'm in the later part of revising it right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm getting close to finishing that, which I'm excited about. Um, and then obviously there's the third book, which... Uh, I already know like the arc of the whole trilogy. So that I've kind of got on the back burner as far as like, okay, well I've got to start thinking about the specifics of the plot instead of just the um, overarching what happens. Um, I also have like a sci-fi that I've started dabbling on, um, which I'm excited about. It's like got, um, got like time bubbles and like a galaxy on the edge of destruction kind of thing. So that one I think will be kind of fun. I hope. <laughs> uh, you had me at time bubbles, so that definitely sounds fun. Yeah, yeah. So I'm excited about that one, and then um, I'm kind of trying to brew up some ideas now for what I'm going to do next after the Bone Shard Daughter, as far as what my next epic fantasy is going to be. Definitely, there's like a lot of kind of weird new world kind of stuff I want to explore. Like I really like once one of the, the elements of, of um, epic fantasy that I really enjoy is that sense of exploring a new world and having it be very different from our own kind of uncovering secrets about it. So I've been tossing ideas around for that as well, but that's about it. I mean, I'm trying not to, I don't want to make myself too busy, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I understand that. Well, one way I kind of like to close out these interviews is just what's one thing that you're excited about right now? Mm, 
well, I'm excited about my book coming out. That's, you know, that's huge for me. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's been a long time. So that I'm very, very excited about. Uh, I'm excited about the pandemic eventually being over. Is that, can I be excited about that? <laughs> <laughs> I think we're all excited or at least hoping for that. Yes. Yes. I have like a whole list of things that I want to do when that's, you know, when that's over, like, oh, go and go into a bookstore and go watch yep. a movie and hang out with friends. <laughs> so, yeah, it'll it'll happen. It'll happen eventually. Well, Andrea, this has been so great. Thanks again for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You can find Andrea Stewart on Twitter as Andrea G. Stewart or at her website, andreastewart.com. The Bone Shard Daughter has everything that made me first fall in love with fantasy. I think it's safe to say I love the bones of it. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyin.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server where you can hang out with us in real time and find more books than you'll ever be able to read. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's it for this week. Until next time.